Welcome to In, Up, Out. As we step from our Fan to Follower series, we're stepping into a three-week conversation around the key concept of In, Up, Out. And this will take us up to the beginning of the Advent season and our approach to Christmas. But I want to welcome you to week one of In, Up, Out. And I wonder what you think of when you hear the words In, Up, Out. I imagine that right now many of you are thinking of a fork. Yes, of course you would be. No, but listen for a second. Hang on. Like, you take a fork and you put it in your food, you bring it up to your mouth, and you take it out, right? It's in, it's up, it's out. What do you think of when you hear in, up, out? I bet there's a number of you out there who are also thinking right now, I'm thinking of a bullet, Sean. You take a bullet, the cartridge, you stick it in the weapon, you raise the weapon up, and you send that bullet downrange and out. It's in, it's up, it's out. Now, most of you probably aren't thinking about forks and bullets. But many of you might be thinking of the imagery in the opening video of of swimming, where we jump in the water, we come up from the water, and we get out of the water, and we do that pretty quick this time of year because it's cold. But it's in, it's up, it's out. Even in the context of us as a church, we, we gather in together, we worship up, and then we go out. That's true. But in this In Up Out series, we're actually looking at a specific spiritual journey of In Up Out. See, many people are living today spiritually incomplete because they have stopped or skipped or avoided living in and up and out and wonder why the things of God don't make sense. But that's because it requires all three. We wouldn't just take a fork, stick it in our food, and put it in our mouth, and then not take the fork out of our mouth, right? That's silly. We can't even just jump in the water, come up from the water, and stay in it. We have to get out. Unless we're a fish, we've got to get out at some point. It's in, it's up, and it's out. And in this journey, many people are living that spiritually incomplete life. But in, up, out allows us to understand how we live loved and linked and sent. In, up, out allows us to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. It's, it's all together. In, up, out allows us to, to journey with God in relationship. And when we skip or avoid or miss any part of it, then we find ourselves out of step with God, wondering why the things of God don't make sense. So we're starting this journey by looking at up, because it sets the tone for everything else. The vertical, it hinges. Everything hinges on the vertical. Even though up is the the middle word, we're starting with up because it is so integral and it influences so many different things. We're starting by looking at up. And that actually takes us to our first fill, and if you're following along your sermon note guide, that we are created for intimacy with God. We are all created for intimacy with God. Created for intimacy with who? God. Now, you may think, okay, that's no big deal. Perhaps you've heard that before, but listen, do you understand what this means? This isn't just an idea or a desire. This is our created purpose. Do you understand what this means? Think about it this way. Imagine yourself in a large arena at a concert for your favorite band or musician, all right? Your favorite band or musician. You got it? Got it in your head, Bettendorf, get in on this? You got it? You're, you're sitting in a large arena. You're actually in the nosebleed section because you couldn't afford the good seats. But you're there with thousands of people who are singing, 
who are cheering, who are watching, when all of a sudden the music stops. And then you hear your name announced from the platform. And your favorite musician is inviting you down front to the front row. Now you go with a bit of fear and trepidation, but excitement. You get down to the front row and then you, you get there and then they invite you up onto platform. You get to meet the band. You get to hang out with the band. In fact, they invite you to play and sing. And even though you're no good, they love it. They love that you're there. They love that you're singing with them. They love it so much, they invite you backstage to hang with them. And you get to meet their family and meet their friends. And they say you should come over to their house sometime. And on top of all of that, they give you their cell phone and say, call anytime. What would you think of that? That would be awesome. That would be totally cool. But listen, as cool as that would be, it doesn't even begin to describe the access we have to God today. See, we're created for intimacy with him. We have an all-access backstage pass up close and in person with the creator of all things. It's beautiful when we know how to live into it. But honestly, many of us don't. So we're spending today and the next couple weeks looking at how we live in, up, out. And we're starting with how we live up, how we live loved. Now we can unpack this, this reality that we're created for intimacy with God by going all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. We can take some time and, and look at how uh, God interacted with his people while they wandered in the desert. We can look at how he interacted with them when they had the temple in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if we go all the way back to Adam and Eve or come all the way up today to today. The reality is that God has consistently, repeatedly desired relationship with us from the very beginning. And even though sin, rebellion, blew up and disrupted his original plan, he has continued, because he loves us, to grant us a means of access. He has provided specific ways along the journey so that we would have access to him. Because he loves us. And I want to look at one way that he did that with his people in one season, in one part of the Old Testament. In fact, we could, we could go back to the garden, we could go to Adam and Eve, we can, we can look at their journey, we can go to Jerusalem and how the temple was designed, but I want to just take a few moments and look at the season where the people of God were in the desert on their way to the promised land or even wandering trying to get back to the promised land where they functioned and interacted with God in the context of a tabernacle. Now, I'm picking tabernacle because it has the core elements of what it meant to approach God in this season, but I'm also picking tabernacle because it's the easiest thing to draw. So when you have the tabernacle, the reality was you had this large area, which is much larger than a football field, but then it had this inner area that was separated by a curtain. This large outer area was called the outer court. It was where people, they entered in. The, the entrance started here and you entered into the outer court. The next part of that process, you entered into what was called the holy place. And then beyond that was this inner sanctum. It was the holy of holies. Which is where you found the Ark of the Covenant where an Indiana Jones tracked it down. And it was the presence of God. And this was the, the approach into that presence. And, and in this season, in this time frame, only one person was able to do that. It was the high priest. And they would, they would go through a process of entering into each layer. And they would experience the presence of God on behalf of the people. And it was, it was a cool, beautiful thing. 
But listen, as much as there is a similar sequence to how we can still approach God, this actual format no longer works the way it did. It's no longer one person having access. When Jesus died, this curtain, this veil that was in the temple in Jerusalem, it tore from top to bottom, symbolizing that we all, by the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, can approach the presence of God. We can experience the Holy of Holies. We can experience his presence and his holiness personally because he dwells in us. We have become the temple. It was Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians. He, he said it this way. He said, do you know, don't you know that you, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? He dwells in us. And so everything that happened in the tabernacle now happens in us. He dwells in us. And we can experience God ourselves by his Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. His presence here and now in us. That's amazing. We don't need somebody else, some other human being. We need Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit in us to approach the holiness of God. But here's the thing, we still struggle to experience the presence of God. Why? Why is it that sometimes when we engage in expressions of worship, we still feel empty? Why does it feel like sometimes the Holy of Holies is, is still just limited to a few and we're relegated to the seats in the nosebleed sections? <laughs> and we don't get to come down, let alone get on stage or backstage and be up close and personal. I think part of it is the posture that we take. I think it, part of it is what we choose to do in that pursuit. Because I think that we too often, too many of us, we are content with having knowledge of God. We're just content with knowing Him. We're being able to describe Him, being able to know we can call on Him in an emergency. We just, we're content with having knowledge of God rather instead of experiencing the presence of God. Which is a very different thing. See, most of us were just wired and content to, to, to think and know things about God, to look at a distance, to be comfortable in our seats and not make the move down to the platform. Even if, even if we do step towards getting closer to Him, often our effort is, it can be so lacking or so self-serving that we can end up in an unhealthy dynamic. It's like we get down to the platform, we get up on platform and we act like it's no big deal and we get backstage, we're not appreciative of the time and we're not respectful of the access and we're like, hey, this is more like an inconvenience that I'm down here. And that would be offensive to our favorite musician. But when we do the same thing spiritually, many of us have done that with God. We go through the motions, we walk down stage, we go backstage and we care so little and we prepare so little and we align so little of our life that we don't actually receive the warm welcome that we expect, and we wonder why. Because whenever we do that, God is not pleased, and he rejects our worship. I, I read last week in a section from the book of Amos. It, it just helped us understand how we live according to you know, his life, his, his rules, and we can be a follower in that context where we give him authority, and he defines who we are and what we do. And you can see more of that online if you want to check it out. But I want to go back to that Amos passage because it puts in context this conversation we're having today. Just a little bit more. Let's take a look at it. This is the Lord. He said, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. 
Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Now, what God is saying he wants to see is that our doing and our being, who we are and what we do, our justice is what we do and righteousness is how we live under his authority. That's what he wants to see. And he can say these things and reject the worship piece, but that's not a good thing. It's really not a good thing. Part of his dissatisfaction here is simply a lack of sincerity, a lack of aligning our heart. And if we hear God speak these words to us at some point in life, that would rock our world. That would be awful. It would be scary. But what's even more scary to me is that it's possible. That we can actually live in a way where God rejects our worship. And some of us today actually are. And that would be an awful thing. Because, listen, God doesn't desire ritual. He desires relationship. It's not about the ritual, it's the relationship that he wants. And if we're going to avoid hearing these words from Amos spoken to us in our life, we need to understand what true worship really is. What true worship is. I mean, it involves in and up and out. But as we're looking at up today, there's just a few things that put some context for how we're going to be able to live up. So let's take a look at them. True worship, first and foremost, is the natural reaction to a supernatural encounter. True worship is a natural reaction to a supernatural encounter. Worship is not about creating something. It's not about stirring up something, but responding to something. Responding to his majesty, responding to his glory, responding to his magnificence. It's, it's rooted in a wonder of God. And we join in worship that is already happening before the throne in eternity, anytime we worship. So encountering him yields an expression of worship. It could be gratitude, it could be appreciation, it could be celebration, it could be reverent fear, it could be some element of admiration. But true worship is responding to God as he reveals himself to us, where we give all that we are to all that we know of him. It's not cluttered by things. It's not even cluttered by performing tasks. I mean, it can, it can happen. We can just start to jam tasks and things in there. But it's ultimately to be a simple, natural reaction to a supernatural encounter. True worship is also a lifestyle and not just a lyric. It, it's not just about music. It's not limited to music. It's about an attitude more than an action. That's why God could say what he did in Amos. You say, look, it's not just the songs we sing on Sunday, but the life we live each week. It's a lifestyle, not just a lyric. And God desires that lifestyle of sacrifice and submission. He wants us to abide in Him, remain in Him, wait in stillness with Him. And we could say that true worship requires hearts more than harps. Because every expression of worship, every true form of worship originates in the heart. And it's reflected in the life. And it's not just the music we sing to God, but the life we live with God. So true worship is a lifestyle of love, not simply a lyric about it. But it is also always expressed in the context of prayer. True worship is always expressed in the context of prayer. We know that prayer is communication. It's, it's the greatest privilege on earth. We get to talk and interact with a holy God. But here's the thing, we can pray without worshiping, but we cannot worship without prayer. Let me say that again. We can pray without worshiping, 
but we cannot worship without prayer. See, we can have this moment where we have a conversation with God. We can talk with him. We can ask him things. We can tell him things. We can yell and cry out to him and never really get to a place of worship. But we're not able to worship without prayer. It, it, worship requires interaction with him, and we do that by prayer. And that interaction actually involves a specific process. It, you can even look at it as, as kind of the, the worship journey. And that takes us back even to this concept of the, the, the tabernacle and what we experience here. Because in this season of what this tabernacle represented, when people entered, they first encountered this altar where they offered a sacrifice it was the altar. And so they offered a sacrifice at that point. The next step in the process, we found this basin. And the basin was a place to be cleansed. It's a place where they would be clean. So the first thing was to sacrifice. The second thing was to experience the cleansing. The third was to step into the holy place where we'd, be, we'd begin to offer worship. We would begin to do the things that he wants us to do in the way that he wants to do it. That, you know, that he would hear that there would be this offering up to him in fellowship. And after doing that, the next step would be to enter into his presence. This was the journey by which people could approach and interact with God. And it's still the worship journey. Because here's what has to happen for us to experience the presence of God. We have to come and offer a sacrifice. We have to confess. We have to say, Lord, here's the junk in my life. Here's the thing that shouldn't be. Here's the sin in my life. I confess it to you and I ask for your forgiveness. Which is where that cleansing piece comes in. Once we confess, then the next part of this is that we step into a place of obedience where we obey, where we do the things he wants us to do. We submit to his authority. We begin to offer worship and praise to him. We begin to obey. And only then are we able to encounter him and his presence. It's to confess, to obey, and then encounter. That's the worship journey. But far too many of us don't step in up and out. We don't live into the whole thing to the full extent. We, we, we stop short. We stay in the outer courts. We stay in the nosebleed sections of the seats. And, and the reality is we can't do that. There, there's a really cool section of Scripture in Psalm. It's Psalm 51, and, and David's praying to God. And, and we're going to go there. You can turn to Psalm 51 if you want, but we're not going to be there long. Uh, it's, a, it's a great little section that gives some further insight into what's happening over there in that tabernacle dynamic and how we move in the worship journey. Here's what David said. He said, Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. Do you see it? Do you, do you see the worship journey in here? This lifestyle of, of, of this prayerful approach, this cleansing reality, repentance reality, the, the sacrifice, the, the, the reality of what it means to live in obedience? It's the worship journey, and it's not about the ritual, it's about the relationship, and that comes through submission and surrender, and ultimately through obedience. In fact, obedience is the central aspect to our worship. It's central to our worship. It's not optional. Anyone who will not obey God cannot expect to see God, let alone begin to worship Him. Obedience is at the root of all true worship, and, and without it, it's impossible to please God. So look, the, the steps to enter into the Holy of Holies weren't so much about specific tasks. Uh, they prepared the worshipers to worship. And obedience was central to that. 
not only in preparation, but daily practice. And, and we cannot worship from a place of self-reliance and independence. We worship from a place of submission and dependence because our identity is in Him. I found this quote from Watchman Nee. One of the, he's a great author. He was a great religious leader, in, in, a Christian leader in China. This is what he said. He said, I must first have the sense of God's possession of me before I can have the sense of his presence with me. Now, he's, he's nailing a hard truth right now that we have to have this submission peace that, that the authority of God reigns in our life first if we're ever going to understand and experience his presence in our life. We cannot worship from a place of independence. We only worship from a place of dependence. And all the rules we read about for Old Testament worship, whether it was in the tabernacle or in the temple, were reflections of obedience and authority. They, they revealed who we belong to. It goes back to that where we place authority that defines who we are and what we do concept. And essentially, it's essential to experiencing His presence because God responds very specifically to it in a very specific way. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn and click with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to pick up this little moment here where Jesus gives us deep insight to this worship journey by understanding the, the centrality of obedience to the whole process. Here's what he says, starting with verse 15. He says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. And dropping down to verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now this right here, this is a goldmine for understanding how we experience and encounter the presence of God because it reveals the worship journey and this key nuance. It's something we've talked about before as a church, but this is the amazing, beautiful, wonderful, crazy cool thing about what it means to approach the presence of God. Because here's how this works. That by, by the grace of God, we can know Him. He reveals Himself to us by creation, by His Spirit, by His Word. He reveals Himself, and so we can actually begin to know Him. And when we know Him, the inherent reality is that we will love Him. Because He is love. And we love because He first loved us. So when we know Him, we will love Him. But if we love Him, the next part of that process is that we will trust Him. When you love something, there's an element of trust to it. So once we trust him, then that means we step into a place where we obey him. And as we just got done reading what Jesus said, when we obey him, then he will show himself more to us. And then we get to know him more. Then we'll love him more and trust him more and obey him more. This is an expression of the worship journey. That ultimately, obedience is an expression of love. And therefore, obedience is our worship. And we cannot expect to see God if we're not willing to obey God. Obedience is central to our worship. But here's the thing. I think too many of us seek in our approach to God. We seek to attain things more than just to abide with him above all things. I think we approach worship as a means to get rather than give. But the greatest blessing of worship is his presence, not his provision. The coolest part about worship is that we get to sit in proximity and stillness and intimacy with a holy God. It's his presence, not his provision. Think about it this way. Here's a picture I want to show you. Okay, what do you see in this picture? You see a hand and you see a bird and you see some bird seed. Okay, what's happening in this picture? Why is that bird there? 
Is it food or friendship? I don't know. That's why I like this picture. Listen, is he there for food or fellowship? I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. But the reality is I like this picture because it captures, in essence, what I'm talking about. That the greatest blessing of worship, the greatest blessing of even prayer for that matter, is his presence, not his provision. But too many of us seek to attain rather than to abide. And that sets us up to miss all that, we're, all that God wants to do with and through us, through his presence. See, I, I wonder why you're here. I wonder why you're here today. Are, are you here to seek him just because he's him? Or are you here to seek what he gives? Why are you here? The, the greatest blessing in pursuing his presence is his presence, not his provision. You know, Jesus once said, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. And there's one other thing that we can learn from, from birds, and it's something that we've looked at once before in the past. But have you ever wondered why, like, birds, like, when they fall asleep at night, they, they don't just fall out of the trees and we wake up in the morning and see a bunch of knocked out dizzy birds on the ground? It's because of how they were created. It's the way that their tendons are designed. Birds are, are specifically created so that, so that when their knees are bent, their talons retract and they lock like steel traps on the branch and will not let go. In fact, they won't let go until the knees are unbent. That's the way they're created. It's kind of cool. <laughs> but what's most fascinating and interesting to me about it is that's exactly the secret for how we remain in him. It's on bended knee. It's a life lived in worship. And as long as those knees are bent, as long as he has authority, then we remain in him. And every time we hold fast to him, he holds fast to us. And our primary goal should be to seek his presence and not just what he provides. And I want to encourage you to seek that presence because when we remain in him, he gives greater presence. When we demonstrate our love in obedience, we get to know him more and we experience his presence more. Because here's the deal, Jesus never called us to worship him, but he did call us to obey. And he did call us to love. And that is our worship. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So the key here for us is that we will never know how to worship until we know how to love. We can try all we want to try to worship, but until we understand love, until we understand and know how to love, we'll never truly worship because love seeks to give more than it takes. And true worship requires knowing how to love so that we seek to give more than we take. And the good news is we can love because he loves us. That's the beautiful, wonderful thing. We can love because he loves us. That's why we say live loved. Because he loves us, we can love him. And then we can love others. So that takes us into living in, and we're going to talk about that next week. But the beautiful thing is that we'll never understand worship without first knowing how to love. And so, because he loves us, we can love. And when we understand and know love, then we can demonstrate that love and obedience. And he reveals himself to us. So let's move this to so what? What do we do with this? Well, I want to go back to that tabernacle and, and that worship journey concept. 
to see what your next step might be today. And I think the first part of it is to understand that when we step into the outer court, the reality of the outer court is that sacrifice moment. It's that confession moment. It's, it's where we offer up the junk of our life and we find purity. We find cleansing. And so the first step in, the, in this journey is to pursue his purity. To pursue his purity. Here's what James has to say about that in chapter 4. He says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Pursue his purity. Listen, at the heart of every human dysfunction, we find sin, and we find a lack of worship. Because every sin is a lack of obedience, which means it's a lack of love, and therefore a lack of worship. It's going backwards in the diamond of, of that knowing, loving, trusting, and obeying. When we don't obey, that means we don't trust, which means we don't love, which means because we don't love, we don't demonstrate it in a manner that we get to experience Him more. We have to first seek His purity. We can't see when we don't obey. God is, He is holy and He can't hang with what is unholy. So we have to seek to be purified to enter fully. Made clean... Not perfect, just made clean. Our sin dealt with, where we surrender to Jesus, we find forgiveness for sin, we receive the gift of eternal life, and we begin to walk with God. That's how this process works. Stepping into the outer court is exactly that. And it's only when we live rightly related with Jesus that we ever begin to understand what God is seeking to do in our lives. So that's the starting point. Let him purify you. And don't believe the lie that you've got to get cleaned up in order to come. No, no, you just come. And then you offer sacrifice, and then you let him cleanse you and clean you and make you pure. Pursue his purity. That takes us to the next thing where we pursue his priorities. This is where we step into the holy place. This is where he hears and he guides us. This is where we obey. Here's what Hebrews says in chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we can approach the throne of God, the, the holy of holies, with confidence. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. It's who he is and what he has done. As we hold firmly to faith, which is to hold firmly to the fact that he has authority, and therefore he gets to determine who we are and what we do. So we live according to his priorities. When we do that, we can experience him. If we don't have a sense of our identity under his authority, we will not experience true worship in his presence. It requires submission and dependence to his priorities. And so as we pursue his purity and we pursue his priorities, then it sets us up to step into the third piece of it, into the Holy of Holies piece, which is to pursue his presence. We can experience his presence. We can go up and into the place where we abide with a holy God. As in 1 John chapter 3, we can read these words. Again, this is God's command to believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ, he told us to love each other in line with the original command. As we keep his commands, 
We live deeply and surely in him, and he lives in us. And this is how we experience his deep and abiding presence in us, by the spirit he gave us. Listen, the guy who wrote this, John, was one of the followers of Jesus. And, and, and he understood what it meant to approach and have that intimate relationship. And he says, look, you got to believe first, and then you got to obey. So it's the outer court, it's that holy place reality. And then, by the Holy Spirit, you can experience his presence. And here's the deal. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you've made that profession, you believe in your heart and profess with your mouth that that is, that is the case for you, then here's the deal. His Spirit is already with you. He is with you already now. Yet too many of us waste time asking God to be with us in our prayers. And I think every time we do that, I think Jesus goes, I already am. I gave you my Spirit. I said I'd be with you. In fact, when he left his disciples, this is what he said in Matthew 28. He said, be sure of this. <laughs> Don't hope for this. Be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you are a follower of Jesus, he is already with you. But listen, pursuing his presence is a slightly different thing. It's not simply about being with. It's kind of like sometimes we sit on an airplane. You ever sit next to somebody on an airplane and you're like right beside them, you're with them, but you don't talk to them at all. You're hopefully like, I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to look at Sky Mall and I'm just done. Like that's being with kind of, that's sitting beside. And, and what Jesus does by being with us is position us to experience his presence. And that's a different thing. To, to pursue his presence is more than proximity. It's relationship. It's heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when we abide with him, when we pursue his purity and we pursue his priorities, then that leads us to experience his presence as we live in, up, and out. His abiding presence is a direct result of all three. Listen, the reality is that Jesus didn't promise us that we would get everything we wanted in life. He, he didn't even promise us that life would be easy or that, that he would be some great delivery man in the sky that every time we ask for something, he'd show up and just give it to us. He doesn't give us the promise of provision, but he gives us a promise of presence. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Be sure of it. That is not a promise of provision, but one of presence. And when we pray and worship in up out, he needs to be our greatest desire. We do it not to gain wealth. We do it not to gain health, not anything. We don't do it to fix problems, to ease our pain, heal our sickness, or fix our brokenness. It's first and foremost seeking his presence, just seeking him. Those other things can come because he does love us. He wants to provide those things, but we first and foremost need to seek him. And there's no greater act of worship than giving God all that we are as his child. There's no greater act of worship than that. Yet many never move into the inner parts, never move past the outer courts. We get stuck seeking to attain rather than just to abide. We want to get rather than give. And that changes the dynamic. Because true worship, living up, is that reality of being so personally and hopelessly in love with God that he is our ultimate desire, our highest aim. And so I wonder today what you need to give up in order to live up. What's the thing that you need to give up in order to live up? 
It, it could be that we're over here again and, and you're in this place of you need to give up something that is sinful in your life. It's a confession and you need to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You need to give that up in order to live up. For some of us, it's this obedience piece right here where, where we need to tr- we've got priorities that conflict with his priorities, and we need to position ourselves in submission and obey. So we position ourselves in this space where we offer everything that we are to all that we know of him. But then I think there's even some of us here today who just need to sit in stillness and encounter him like never before, to ask him to speak to your head and your heart and your mind and your soul. To just be still. What do you need to give up in order to live up? When we do this and move through this process, we begin to experience the kingdom here on earth. We usher in the kingdom. And, and we're going to talk more about that over the next two weeks. But here's what I want to do even now. We can talk about this all we want, but until we actually do it, we're not going to experience it. So I want to take a moment where we step into a quiet time for each of us to offer up what we need to give up in order to live up. And maybe again for you, that's a confession piece where there's a purification that needs to take place in your life because you're not clean. And that's keeping you from experiencing the Holy of Holies. It could be you've got another set of priorities that don't match up to the priorities of God and, and you need to submit and surrender to his authority like you've not done yet before. The reality is we all have a next step. We all have something to give up in order to live up. And I want to start us into a prayer moment. And then I'm going to stop praying and walk away. I'm not even going to say amen. But that's to allow you to continue into the conversation. And then allow us as a church family to step back into worship through song. Having had the conversation where we give up what we need to give up in order to live up. So let's take a moment... You take a moment to take your next step as you seek to live in the intimacy that he offers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we take a moment even now to quiet ourselves before you, I am so grateful that you provide access through your son Jesus by your Holy Spirit to you, a holy God. Thank you for loving us enough to do that. Thank you for not forsaking us, for never leaving us. But Father, I pray in these next few moments that you would speak to us that as some offer up a sacrifice, a confession, and you seek by the blood of Jesus to purify, may you be glorified in that. For those that need to offer up some priority or pursuit or some other obstacle that is in competition with you having the highest place and highest platform, may we do that. And then, Father, may we all, in the stillness of these next few moments, encounter you, your holiness, your presence.